Hi, welcome everybody. My name is Norman Swan to Flip the Clinic, um, this uh, meeting which where we're trying to discuss some new ways of thinking about uh, distance or telepsychology, telepsychiatry in the new world and new models of care. We're not going to be talking about uh, new, new ways of billing. What we are going to be talking about is how we actually might transform mental health care in Australia. And uh, it's really a, quite a radical moment in, uh, in Australia where within a matter of weeks, days in fact, we've transformed how care can be delivered sort of things we've been talking about for a long time. Um, and uh, it's now on the threshold, but now it's now happening. And, um, and really this discussion we're having is independent of platforms. It's about, um, it, it's about actually how to do the job that we are all trained to do. My name is Norman Swan. I produce and present the health report on Radio National and I'm hosting this. Ian, let's start off and you tell us some context to this discussion around the clinic. Yes, yeah, so I'd like to thank people for taking the time and I'd like to recognise the Indigenous people of our lands and the lands on which we all meet and are collected today and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to everyone who's lived with mental health experiences in their own life and in their families. This is such an interesting time and challenging time for all of us and we have seen in the Australian healthcare system the sudden discovery of Alexander Graham Bell's invention from 1876, the telephone, this week in our own Medicare system. And suddenly everyone is having to use it to connect the people in need of a service. But actually, digital mental health isn't simply tele-mental health. It's not really about telephones. It's about the 21st century digital technologies that we have. And the capability, the potential that we might finally in Australia and internationally do what we've always wanted to do, actually take services to scale, to meet the enormous need that's out there in quality mechanisms and in a highly personalized way. We've been very lucky in Australia, and we'll hear from an international expert on this shortly, to actually have had a great deal of innovation here. But much of that innovation has never reached actually those in greatest needs. It's been in universities, it's been in particular platforms, it's been in particular centers, but has never really impacted on the wider health center. So this is the first in what we hope is a series of webinars that will actually go to what are the big issues if we're finally gonna to go to the scale and provide a wealth of opportunity for those who have mental health issues to access world's best care in highly personalized ways, in ways they may prefer, that at the end of the day, we might end up with digitally enabled services that are actually considerably better and scalable and accountable and transparent and fundable. Lots of aspirations. But to do that, we need the wide range of perspectives that are here this evening. To give you some idea of what I'm talking about in terms of the capabilities here, I wonder if we could just bring up the one slide, my first slide here for people to see. When we talk about flipping the clinic, what we're really saying is that there are a whole lot of services out there at the moment, what you might call the retail end. All the brands that you would recognize in Australia of many different ways that people come in historically through our clinics. If people start to come in digitally through those clinics and combine information across all those services, so the big football shape or sausage shaped operator here, we have platforms, we have technologies that can integrate those informations across those different platforms. So we can work in a multidisciplinary way, no matter what service you come in for to meet your needs. And down the bottom, we have all of the other world of the internet of its tools, of its apps, of its applications, of its personal tracking devices, of its social groups, of its social connecting functions, which may be made available to users of all those sets of 
um, services that we currently recognise. If I can go to the next slide, I'm personally associated with one of those platforms known as the Innerwell platform. But what I wanted to show you in that is that built into those times of platforms is, as you'll see on the right, the idea of a video interface. And that's what everyone suddenly discovered. These are very famous child psychiatrist colleagues of ours, Lara Ospina-Polinos in Colombia, who was providing services while she's sitting in Bogota to people in Broken Hill in New South Wales using these types of platforms. But it's that video capability embedded within a whole digital system. So when we talk digital mental health, we're not just talking what's happened this week of suddenly using video or telephone. We're talking about systems that take the best of what clinicians currently do, that interface, that capability, but potentially taking it to scale with all sorts of new capabilities. The rest of the people you hear from tonight are all engaged in various ways of many of the issues. Who's it for? What populations? How is it safe? How will it be regulated? How can it be optimally done? We hope to use the opportunity with you and with your comments. We have had more than 800 people register for this particular webinar. We want to hear your comments. We want to hear your key concerns. We want to hear what fusses you. So in the future, we can plan further information on interactive sessions that help us as a community come to terms with the tremendous opportunity that now arises from otherwise what has been one of the most challenging times in our social history with the COVID-19 crisis. But out of that is an opportunity potentially to do things really differently. Take the academic, take the well-developed, take the narrow and see whether we can apply it at scale. So at that point, I'll hand back to Norman. Yeah, I mean, it's fine to say all that, Ian, but I mean, it sounds still abstract. I mean, we're we talking about a different session, for example, with the client than you would face-to-face. -face. Is, there, is, the, is this more like single session therapy or is it, you know, what's, what's, what's the nature of the interaction and are we changing that fundamental model? There's no doubt that digital health interventions are fundamentally different than in-person, one-to-one in particular, in clinic with a warm, caring, lovely therapist type person. Mental health is filled with warm, lovely, not me, but it's filled with other warm, cuddly, nice, interactive people. And people love that. What it's often not account, uh, attached to, though, is specific skills training, tracking, triaging, making sure you get the right care first time in ways that actually suit you. It's quite in many ways, profession-centric and clinic-centric and not scalable. So clinicians fundamentally do have to take the best of what they've already learnt, apply it differently, but then combine it with a whole lot of new technologies and skills that typically they have not used and potentially do that with many, many more people than they currently do. So yes, it won't be simply taking the existing item numbers or the existing clinical training in psychology or psychiatry or general practice or social work or nursing and just doing it over a video platform. That isn't digital mental health. That's telehealth just using the more recent invention than the telephone. So yes, it'll be fundamentally different. You'll still need the skills that you had in your discipline, but you're gonna to need to learn to interact with technologies and greater partnerships with people in care where they are actually partners in care and empowered by the technologies in ways that I would argue is not the case with current interactions. So is this about tracking, surveillance, monitoring? I mean, what's, what's it about? It's about personalization through monitoring. Everything in the worlds we talk about is consented to, is approved by the person themselves, but they get to put information in. They get access to tracking tools, whether it's sleep-wake cycle, whether they're mood monitoring, whether they're substance abuse monitoring, whether they're other physiological monitors. They learn more about themselves. So the whole clinical thing is not averages, it's not clinical trials, not clinical guidelines, not what on average works, but actually what works for you. In what way does exercise drive your mood? 
In what way does reducing alcohol improve your sleep? In what way does changing your thoughts in change your sense of well-being? It becomes about you over time. So the tracking, the measurement-based care concept over time does become critical. And what about the client population? Is it all high prevalence problems, anxiety, depression, or can you, do you envisage low prevalence disorders, people with psychosis, bipolar disorder, and so on being helped by this? I think one of the things that will be really different here in the multidimensional assessments that I'm using in our systems is we will respond to complexity much better. Not to diagnosis, not to categories, not to low prevalence versus high prevalence, but to complexity. What is your sets of needs? What are the services you actually require to work in partnership? Who are the multidisciplinary care providers? And how do we contact you? And I'll see, we'll see in John's data shortly, much more information from the service user, much more regularly to drive a much more responsive service system. Okay, well, let's move to John Torres, who is the Director of Digital Psychiatry Division, Pharma Psychiatry at Beth Israel at Harvard Medical School in Boston. He's got up at some un totally ungodly hour to do this. So um, hats off to John Turos. John, just tell us about your experience and again, give us a touch and feel of what we're talking about here. Yes, so thank you guys for having me. I think Australia is a world leader in digital health and especially digital mental health. So it's an honor to be beaming in even from Harvard talking to all of you about digital mental health. And what I wanted to show you guys was in a couple slides, some examples that are tangible things of how digital mental health can be different but in some ways offering the same type of information and services. So I'm gonna flip to the next slide. So here's just an example actually from really 2014, now six years ago. And this was a simple smartphone app where we asked people depression to basically take surveys about their mood every day. And I think what's interesting is here's what that actually looks like in reality. Those green boxes are when we saw the person in the clinic on day zero and 30, you say, what is that blue line that's kind of like a stock ticker graph? That's people's daily mood. It goes up and down compared to the green boxes. And you notice two things. It's higher than we see on the green boxes. And there's those diamonds when someone reported thoughts of suicide or self-harm that were severe. So you're seeing just by asking people surveys in real time, when they come back for a clinical visit, having a graph like this tells a very different story than again, say having two of those green boxes. We're understanding people's dynamic symptoms, how they evolve over time, how there's fluctuation. And again, that's just by asking people to give us data in real time that we can use for their care. And we, the field has been doing this for a long time. And we'll jump to the next slide. Just before we go to the next slide, um, there are apps everywhere, with all due respect. And um, one of the problems is that they don't necessarily integrate with anything. They just sit there as an app. And the, the therapist doesn't actually use it because there's work and time involved in integrating that into their system. So it's all great. You've got a mood thing. You can look at it. But in fact, you don't use it because it's time consuming. Yep. So there are a lot of apps. We, we think there may be, when you kind of count the meditation, the mindfulness, the wellness, over 10,000 mental health rated smartphone apps out there today. One of the projects we do here in the States is I chair the American Psychiatric Association's Health IT Committee. We actually have an app evaluation kind of work group and task force. And we've kind of looked at how do you separate out the good from the bad apps? How do you kind of have some guidance to find a useful, safe tool and avoid some of those dangerous, creepy ones. 
And what we've kind of found is one of the first things to think about safety and privacy, as you mentioned, Norman, earlier, kind of making sure that ethics are taken care of. But I think equally important is looking at the clinical integration. If you can use this tool, can you access your own data? Can you share it with someone? Can it be actionable? If you're tracking your mood, you want to be tracking your mood towards a goal of something, either for self-help, self-care, or sharing it with a therapist and integrating that data. And if the app can't do that, it's probably not going to be a good tool. So I think your point is it's well taken. We may draft you into our task force, the American Psychiatric Association. That's all I need. <laughs> Sorry I interrupted you. Go on to your next slide. That's okay. Yeah. So we'll jump back to the next slide. So we talked about how from asking surveys, or it's kind of known technically as ecological momentary assessment, there's also this idea of digital phenotyping that we can gather a lot more data than just surveys from the phone. And this is an example of data we can get from digital phenotyping where we can clearly get surveys. We can have we can get environmental data that people may tag for us from their phones, the phone certainly knows where I am right now. It knows where you are, Norman. We can certainly get that data over time, and you can see how we can anonymize it. We can just get a heat map for one person of kind of where they were on one day being a column. You can kind of see weeks. So we can learn about kind of time at home, distances traveled. We can learn about step count, kind of exercise and sleep. And we can put all this data together to learn, in this case, about we're learning about relapse in people with schizophrenia. So what we did is for each person, we set a personal baseline. You can see in that kind of graph of all the dots. Then each day, once we knew our someone's personal baseline, we said, well, is that person's mobility? Is their sociability and their self-reported outcomes or surveys? Is that kind of below their baseline or is that above it? And what we could tell is when we had a lot of dots above their baseline for each for an individual person, for one person this is, we say, you know, that person is at higher risk. The red arrow is kind of when the person relapsed and had to go to the emergency department. But you can see that because we can learn of each person, what are their personal patterns of behavior related to their illness, we can kind of say, well, certain things are happening together and different for that one person compared to themselves. That may indicate that there's higher risk. So kind of using digital phenotyping, gathering more data from the phone, we can learn about kind of personal risk patterns for each person. And I'll explain how we put this together on the next slide. So how we use this in Boston is in research, but also what we call a digital clinic. And you can see that because an app, and again, many apps can do this, there's so many, as you kind of said, great apps from Australia and interesting work, but if we can collect this physical activity, environmental stressors, real-time surveys, through an app kind of yellow in that box, we can run relapse risk algorithms but we can also kind of make a personal plan for people, as Dr. Hickey alluded to. We can learn about how people are doing, but that doesn't come between and below the patient and the clinician. We want to ensure it's a strong therapeutic alliance and that additional digital data, if anything, should be bringing the clinician and the patient closer together. It helps me when I do this understand the lived experience of the people I'm working with, what they're going through. And in part to make sure this doesn't detract from the clinical visitor quality, what we've also done here in Boston is we've added a new person to our clinic called a digital navigator. If you think about it in radiology, it may not be the radiologist who actually takes the x-ray. It may be a technologist, right? A radiology tech. In pathology, there may be a pathology tech. So if you think about it, for digital psychiatry, we may have a new person to care team, a digital navigator. And what that digital navigator can do is they can help set up apps, they can help troubleshoot technology, they can help with pesky webinars, getting those video things going. 
So I think really thinking about new tools and new data and new people to support it. And that brings me to the last slide. I was thinking about making sure we support people with the right education, the right skills and knowledge. We also have to make sure and realize that not every person, clinicians, but patients as well, has been given kind of opportunity to learn how to use technology towards their mental health and well-being. There's a program we have called DOORS, Digital Opportunities for Outcomes and Recovery Service. We actually offer groups where we teach people, especially with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, what is a smartphone? They may have one, their social worker may have given one, their therapist may have helped them get one, but no one's actually said, how do you actually use this phone towards your mental health and wellness? And you can imagine that people really wanna learn. Sometimes when you are given a phone, you don't get the manual of how to use it to improve your mental health. So making sure we offer training programs to help people best utilize technology. Again, clinicians and people with lived experience of mental illness as well can be a very powerful tool. So I think you're seeing it's new data, but it's also new systems of care, new team members, and new education as well. And the, so, I just want to back up a little bit. Well, so for example, let's say you've got somebody with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, this looks too good to be true. I mean, you, you offer something like this to somebody with schizophrenia if they've got a sort of slightly paranoid, in a paranoid mood, they're just going to think that you're following them and they wouldn't trust it and they're going to throw it in the bin. Um, how, what sort of acceptability do you get to convince people and that's exactly what you are doing. You're following them and you're monitoring them to help them, albeit, but it, will, it could feed um, delusional paranoia, for example. So it's, it's a good question, Sanger. Do people with schizophrenia or psychosis who, who may at times have symptoms related to paranoia, do they worry about technology like this? And the answer actually is no. If you think about it, there's nothing about having a mental illness that means you don't want to use technology, you don't want to use a phone, you don't want to connect to the internet. And certainly, I think when you realize that this data is being used with your consent for you to understand your mental health, for you to get better care, for you to avoid relapse, I think you're seeing technology that, if anything, sometimes people's psychosis or again, schizophrenia may spend more time online. They may be more socially isolated right, using these tools. And finally, their therapist or clinician or psychologist, psychiatrist says, I want to work with these same tools that you're using. I want to use the data that you're sharing on Facebook already. You've probably given to a lot of sources that aren't actually protecting your information. I want to use this to help you. We've had very positive responses in Boston. Clearly, there are going to be some people who don't want to use video visits or apps or technology, but it's actually a very small minority. If you look at the medical literature and say, do those things like this make people paranoid? Do, do they kind of become worse for it? The answer is actually no. And there's research from Australia or around the world. Maybe afterwards with Dr. Hickey, we can post some of this research and kind of say, look, people actually feel that someone actually wants to understand their lived experience of the illness. In anything, it's quite the opposite sometimes, or and, most of the time. And then the right, the right time to introduce this digital approach to care, and a new model of care, when somebody, regardless of whether it's um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or, or commoner problems such as depression, anxiety, people can be acutely unwell. And um, can you introduce them when you're acutely unwell or, or, there, or there's a, the right moment or the right moment is day one on the first consultation? So the right moment is on day one. Again, first, the digital technology, 
one of the weaknesses, we don't have a baseline. We're learning about it in comparison to each person. We have some ideas, but because it's newer for these digital signals I talked about, we really do a lot of within-person comparison, meaning we look at changes within each person. So having it starting on day one gives us a better baseline of how someone is doing in those changes. And there's going to be a lot of competition in the marketplace between platforms. Just very briefly before I move on, um, is, uh, is, is the extent to which the, um, is, is the criteria you would use as a mental health professional for selecting the platform for you? So the criteria that we've worked with the American Psychiatric Association is four steps. It says find one that's safe and private, find one that has evidence that's effective, find one that's usable, it has high usability, and fourth, find one that can be well, easily clinically integrated. So what's safe, what's effective, what's usable, and what can be well clinically integrated. And those are pretty universal criteria, but you'd be surprised how quickly some of these apps don't meet those bars. Okay, John, thanks very much. We'll come back to you later, no doubt, in question and answer time. Sam Hockey is next. Sam is Youth Ambassador, uh, Youth Mental Health Ambassador, former Mental Health Commissioner, uh, grew up in the New South Wales coast and has, has lived experience in this area. Sam, do you want to just talk to us about your perspective here um, in terms of design, co-design involvement of uh, consumers in this? Yeah, um, I think that uh, it is an incredibly... Um, uh, incredibly poignant time to be um, using this space of not just telehealth but digital health um, and flipping the clinic um, as the, the webinar is called um, and using um, particularly using co-designed um, products products that are and services that are designed with the, the user uh, at the center um, ones that uh, model the the delivery of care with the clinician and the individual um, together, ones that um, have had the either the individual um, as part of the design process, either in co-design or as, um, as uh, um, cons consultation. Um, either, either or is fine, but letting, letting the public know which you have used um, is extremely important, especially to people with lived experience. Um, and then I think that, I think doing that is the only true way of being able to actually have a product that serves, serves the individual that you're trying to, to serve properly and truly. So tell me, you've experienced you know, this concept of the clinic yourself in terms of digital mental health? Yeah, yeah, and I I personally have found it incredible. Um, I found it. Uh, what can you share about it that you would like to? You know, I think it's important that we get the feel of what it's like as a consumer at your end. Yeah, um, it, 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 I think first and foremost, it's not to replace face-to-face -face services. Um, that is not at all the idea. The idea is to complement and to um, build a further. A, further build the pathways between the individual and their clinician um, and the service um, provider. Um, I have used um, anything from Fitbits to um, my Apple Watch uh, to sort of sleep monitors to track how um, my personal progress uh, is going and, and those sorts of simple um, circadian rhythm style 
um, aspects actually have um, affected my mental health and well-being. And similarly, um, even just using uh, face-to-face and um, sort of FaceTime uh, uh, Zoom uh, conferencing for appointments, especially recently in this um, time, uh, I've had an appointment over over uh, FaceTime, so that. So how do how do you feel about the effectiveness of the ther- so there's personal monitoring, the personalization that both yeah. you and John have spoken about uh, to suit your needs and monitoring your own health and well-being to give you control, understand all that. But tell me about the therapeutic efficacy, if you like, from your point of view as a consumer, when you're doing a FaceTime session on your mo- on your mobile phone or you're doing it on your laptop. Yeah, I think that it hasn't. Um, it doesn't repl- I, like again. It doesn't replace face to face. There is a percentage that lacks um, with face to face or um, isn't uh, as good as face to face. But the thing is, um, you are still receiving the care um, when it is the the, the appointments, um, and it isn't uh, replacing or uh, ignoring all of the face to face appointments. It's to it's to do every other appointment or to in times like now to actually to be able to attend those appointments. And for me personally, that's been an absolute lifesaver, um, particularly in such a, such a crisis. Could you see, um, I mean, you're, you, you work in peer support, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, could you see it replacing for people who prefer it? I mean, would you see any decrement, if you like, in their care, if people opted for this as their mode of care for everything, you know, almost no face-to-face? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I could. Um, for certain individuals, I think I could. Um, I know a lot of people who tend to use only online um, resources like forums and chat, chat groups, and a lot of people prefer the anonymity. Um, so there is that, uh, that benefit of it. However, I think that the, the, the true beauty of it is used in conjunction with face-to-face. And that's, that's something that you can't, you can't miss out on. What's your message for the psychologists and psychiatrists, social workers, et cetera, et cetera is the wrong word, watching, your support people as well watching, what's your message? I think the, the core message is to include uh, the individuals, the, the consumers, the carers, um, those who are supporting the individual in the building of a service, if you're building a service, um, or in the supporting of the service, in delivering the service. Um, in every, it, it's particularly at the moment, it's changed completely. It, it's no longer um, uh, as simple as turning up for an appointment and being able to register so many things. We, I mean, we only see a portion of the body at the moment. Um, so being able to rely on those other, um, those other community, uh, communities and, and services that we can actually see, you know, whether they are going for walks, how they are doing with sleeping, um, how they are doing with their social interacting. Um, to actually get a fuller picture of um, an individual and how they are in their their well-being. Sam, thanks for talking about that, and we will no doubt come back to you 
later in the webinar. Uh, Professor Francis K. Lampkin is Acting Pro Vice Chancellor of Research and Innovation and uh, DVC Research and Innovation at the University of Newcastle. Uh, eminent researcher and psych psychologist, extensive, extensive experience in clinical research, particularly in complex and comorbid mental health issues. Kay, what's the perspective that you come from here in terms of this new way of thinking about the clinic and mental health care? Thanks, Norman. And, and I think uh, it's really important that we're doing this, this session tonight. So thank you, everyone, for making time to, to tune in. The main exciting part for me is still mental health really does bring brand new capability and new capacity um, to us in responding to the mental health problems in our community. So I'm sure we heard all the statistics about typically in Australia, we don't get great uptake of the mental health treatments in our mental health and drug and alcohol services. Um, so it's only around a third of people will, will seek treatment in any one year. And what our research at the University of Newcastle and also through the Matilda Centre at Sydney University has indicated is that through these digital mental health tools, we're able to connect with people in our community who we've never, or our services have never, connected with before. And that's not because they're not severe enough, if that's a way to describe it, severe enough in their concerns to warrant treatment. It's actually that, that often people haven't known how to, where to, or whether they've wanted to go to those formal services for help. So what digital mental health does is really take care out of the services and puts it into the hands of people who need help when they need Needed. And I, in that way, transform the way we think about mental health treatment and, and that genuine flipping of the clinic. And it's putting that person themselves at the centre of it all. Uh, and I think the exciting thing about this is that it's also an extremely effective uh, way to deliver uh, and connect people to high quality mental health treatment. And again, our research and others around um, the Brady Bunches, I'm looking at us all today, uh, really does show that the digital mental health tools are and can be as effective as face-to-face counselling for conditions like depression and anxiety, also now for psychotic disorders like we've touched on, um, and particularly for, and can be actually more effective for things like alcohol use disorders, cannabis use disorders and, and other substance use disorders, and also the complexities or the, um, uh, the extra issues that comorbidity, so all of these issues occurring together can bring. And um, just picking up on a, a couple of the points that Sam was mentioning, um, people in our trials who've been through our digital programs actually rate their alliance, so their experience of therapy in terms of the bond and their connection um, to the therapeutic process, equally as high whether they're receiving a face-to-face -face treatment or one of our digital programs. Um, and for digital tools, they really rate their independence and self-efficacy higher, and that's associated with better outcomes um, for people who are higher on self-efficacy. So I think what also excites me about digital mental health is that it's bringing a new level of quality to mental health care and is enabling an ongoing connection to that care in, the, in a way that will make a genuine difference right now for people, but also over the longer term as they can dip back into and out of these digital tools. So I'm not quite sure, Francis, how you get better quality out of this. I mean, um, I spoke about the potential uh, nervous reaction of say somebody who might have schizophrenia to be monitored by something like this and John answered that question but I would see um, uh, also a nervous reaction on the part of maybe a therapist to a psychologist or a psychiatrist who says oh this is a way of monitoring my quality of care and uh, I'm not going to have you know they're going to be monitoring my fidelity to CBT and um, I like my freedom and be able to do whatever I like so I'm not quite sure how it translates to quality. 
Well, I think it's in, in a, a really, it's, it's actually in the model and the way we deliver the care. And so the, the automation or the program or the course that we might develop involves some, some education um, and some ways in which a person can teach or train themselves to do things like problem solving skills or identify and challenge and manage problematic thoughts. And they, those things and those aspects of, for example, cognitive behaviour therapy and mindfulness and those sorts of skills are very easy and straightforward to transform and deliver via a digital program, much like a course that um, many of us are completing now at home um, in an online way where we're teaching ourselves to learn certain behaviours and concepts. And But there's stuff that you actually can't delegate or assign to a digital tool um, in that way, um, Sam's comment about always needing a clinician or a therapist to work alongside these tools is important, and that's the model we want. We want to free up the clinicians to be able to deliver those aspects of care that we can't automate and that we can't teach people to do themselves, that they can be much more responsive and probably, uh, I guess, are much better equipped to deal with those sorts of situations and issues. But we let the digital tool actually deliver that, um, that consistent, um, high-quality level of education and training the person needs to, to, to do those extra things that um that the therapist doesn't always need to be the one to deliver so i guess and when you say you're connecting with people you've never connected before they've got to have a door in which to enter in order to connect so i'm not quite sure how you're connecting to people you've never connected before it's uh, in a number of really interesting ways. It's through forum, fora like this. Um, people are on Facebook. They're searching for these sorts of tools. We might go out and, and make, um, you know, on social media. Um, you go digitally hunting for clients, do you? That sounds really creepy when you put it that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's actually using the same kind of digital um, marketing and other tools that a lot of companies can use to promote the value and the quality of a product. But I guess the message is that we don't wait for people to try not to wait for people to come and find us. And I think that's what one of the messages needs to be, is that we actually need to be going out there and proactively promoting that this is a viable, credible and important service that can augment our health and well-being. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Julie Sturgis is Chief Executive Officer of the North Coast New South Wales Primary Health Network and uh, as such is trying to develop new models of mental health care on the North Coast of New South Wales. Um, in fact, getting health services to cash out their mental health services as well as the PHN and, uh, and develop, develop new styles of care. Julie, what are you finding in this new model in, on the North Coast? Um, look, I, I would agree with what everyone said. I think the opportunities that we found in um, trying to push the digital agenda, you know, they, they've been met with enthusiasm um, and and a lot of optimism, really. And, you know, I think what drove us in the first instance to really investigate where we could go with this was that, you know, um, we're, we're talking about telehealth this week in the, in the um, context of COVID, but really long before this, um, you know, access to appropriate mental health services, particularly on the North Coast, was a really big dilemma for us. Um, and certainly when we look at our community, um, you know, we think probably across the demand in our community for mental health services, we might meet about 20% of that. So so the, the, the onus on us was really to investigate ways that we could actually deliver better outcomes um, and more efficient services um, in mental health to people on the North Coast. Um, and so, you know, similar to Francis's comment, um, you know, what we had to look at really closely was how can we look for alternative models to deliver the things that are appropriately um, delivered via a digital context and so then use those 
um, very scarce resources like clinicians. And, you know, that's something that is particularly relevant in a regional and rural context um, to be delivering either via face-to-face -face or via um, telecommunication channels, te te video or, or telephone, um, to augment those things. So I think it's been incredibly for, important for us to try and, and look, at, look at that. And I think the opportunities that we saw um, were, you know, there were some surveys done across the country that looked at people's use of particularly mobile home and um, mobile phones and digital technologies. And I think even in Aboriginal communities identified that about 98% of people have um, a mobile phone that they actually use. Now, I mean, we probably realised very recently that connectivity still might be an issue with that and we're augmenting that. And then access to data is another thing um, that we need to also support. But in general, people there there is a very widespread availability of mobile technology to take up digital solutions. Um, and I think also to Francis's point, you know, what we know is that a lot of people are not accessing those early um, and exposing themselves to those best opportunities for recovery. So um, some of the things we are doing is exactly as she highlighted, using social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, and really trying to understand the needs of the community through those mechanisms so that we can um, tailor our responses and encourage those people to seek care. So. Um, lots of opportunities and then in seeking that and understanding those needs, um, particularly the work we're doing in, around introducing really clear assessment and staging tools so that the services we provide are tailored to what people need rather than the traditional services that have always been delivered. And I think you've had some benefit in terms of do not attend. We're, look, most recently, in the last few weeks, obviously there's been a really marked shift to um, to telehealth services um, for psychology support and particularly in the youth, youth cohort, um, you know, Jason will probably comment on this, but failure to attend rates are often, um, you know, around 25%, 20 to 25%. And what we've seen is just a dramatic reduction down into very low single digit um, percentages. Um, you know, and we're assuming um, it's because the ability to access those um, appointments is just so much easier for people. Thanks, Julie. I'm going to move to Peggy Brown now. Um, Peggy is Senior Clinical Advisor of the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare and has had numerous leadership um, roles within the mental health sector in Australia and particularly consultations around the national safety and quality of digital mental health standards. I mean, what are we talking about here when we're talking about digital mental health standards, uh, Peggy? Uh, well, Norman, the Australian Government Department of Health has commissioned the um, Commission on Safety and Quality to develop these digital standards. And we're talking about um, standards that cover telephone, video conferencing, uh, uh, web-based services, SMS and apps across mental health, uh, suicide prevention and drug and alcohol sectors um, and different categories of services as well. So information services, digital counselling, treatment services and peer-to-peer uh, -peer support services. And the elements of the standard that you're talking about? Well, we've done an extensive consultation process um, and what we heard from that is that people really want to see standards in this space. Um, and there were both clinical and technical elements that were important 
uh, to people. And so at the moment, we're consulting on draft standards uh, and we have three standards. The first one is a governance standard and it integrates clinical governance and technical governance. The second standard is around partnering with consumers. And we've already heard uh, some of the speakers tonight emphasising how important that is. Uh, and then the third one is around the model of care standard, about establishing and delivering the, the model of care, about minimising harm, uh, and also looking at uh, communication and uh, recognising and responding to acute deterioration. Is there a standard that will prevent digital mental health going the way of non-digital mental health, which is that we have drug and alcohol services separate from mental health services, separate from suicide prevention, they don't talk to each other, they don't like each other very much, and uh, comorbidity falls through the cracks. Uh, how do we, are you going to create standards which force integration? Uh, Norman, I'm not sure that we can achieve uh, miracles, um, and, but certainly the, the emphasis in the but standards... But you could make it worse with the apps. You could cement the problems in the system through the apps. So drug and alcohol people will produce their drug and alcohol apps and services, mental health people will do theirs, and the client will be the person, yet again, who suffers. Yeah, I, I guess um, what, I'm, what I was wanting to say, I guess, is that we're not trying to, uh, within these voluntary standards, to actually require or mandate that there has to be interoperability. We are emphasising, I guess, the person-centred nature of the care and the need to actually uh, look at what are the needs of the individual and how they can be best met and particularly with the partnering with consumers standard that covers partnering with the, the person in their own care and then partnering uh, with consumers in, in the governance, the design, the planning of services and, in, and indeed in the measurement and evaluation of services. So that emphasis on uh, consumers at the centre, I think, will help with that, that uh, what you're talking about, which is the kind of integration of all of the care needs across the different sectors. Thanks very much, uh, Peggy. I just want to check if Pat Dudgeon's on the line. Is Pat with us? I am. Oh, Pat, you're here. Fantastic. <laughs> Pat Dudgeon, who's in the School of Indigenous Studies and project leader of the ARC Discovery Indigenous at the University of Western Australia, and uh, has been on the Mental Health Commission and very senior mental health positions within Australia and, uh, and made significant contributions to Indigenous psychology and higher education. How do Indigenous populations feel, fit into this, this ecosystem, if you like, Pat? Oh, look, I think um, I personally would have thought that face-to-face -face was more important um, because, you know, we subscribe to um, a, a, a concept of um, mental health, which is about social emotional well-being. So it is very much a face-to-face, -face, knowing your, your client's background culture, um, knowing what their, you know, uh, life priorities are. Um, which can be different to mainstream. And I personally would have thought that um, digi-mental uh, digi health might have been a bit limited. Um, however, we've been um, talking to Lifeline and other organisations like that, and they, um, they were doing the crisis uh, tax. They were trialling that out before um, the pandemic came out came down and they they um said that the greatest take up of that was young indigenous 
um, people. So that was a bit of a surprise. So I think we need to, you know, go back and especially with the um, uh, coronavirus in place, you know, that we know already some of our Indigenous councillors are using tele um, mental health, um, doing phone counselling. But it would be interesting to do some um, consumer surveys with Indigenous um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander populations and um, see it about the take-up. I was interested to hear the lady from the PHN, I'm looking, I can't see her face. Um, uh, she said that the, the people she was working with in her area were very keen for um, Digi Health. So, uh, so I, I would open the door on it. Um, I think that we need to probably... Uh, we don't have much option now, so I think the luxury of choice might not be ours in any case. But for a lot of people who are living in remote areas, they might choose not to access a counsellor in town or in their communities because of the shame factor or whatever. This might be a good way forward. And I think certainly with the youth, it might be a good way forward. But um, I'll, I've, we've actually got a meeting with the Indigenous Sykes tomorrow night. So I'm, I'm going to share some of this with them. And um, um, so I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic. Mm. Thanks, Pat. Mike Millard is Clinical Director of the Clinical Research Unit for Anxiety, Depression at St Vincent's Hospital. Uh, he's also Director of This Way Up, which is a, a leading evidence-based provider of digital mental health and wellbeing services, who's actually doing it. Um, so you've got a platform that people can access now. What are the key messages that you think are relevant here? Uh, so, I mean, there's been so a lot of the things that have been raised so far, um, I, I guess I'd comment on. I think that uh, one of the things that we're mindful, and I, I mean, I say this as, as part of the, the uh, so clinical research unit, is that when we're jumping into the sea of, of online tools to try to make sure we're using the ones that have evidence, um, one of the things that one of the reasons why people choose this way up is that our stuff has gone through 34 randomised control trials, some of which have been replicated internationally. And I mean, it was interesting to hear what John was John was saying over at Harvard because they've been using our depression program as part of their online uh, their online uh, service. Um, so uh, the other thing that I would say is that I'm a clinician uh, and uh, I've been using these digital interventions for many years in the flipped clinic. So I use them to teach the teach uh, patients the skills um, that we know work and then I use my clinical time to help them to apply them. And I think that sits very well with the, the sort of flipped classroom model. Um, so, I mean, on the slide that, that I've put together, I've said that there's, there's a whole variety of the ways that we use our stuff. So it's either as a standalone intervention, and as a standalone intervention, it breaks my heart, it works. Um, so that's for the high prevalence disorders, that's for anxiety, that's for depression, it's also for our chronic pain course as well. Um, I've talked a little bit about augmented face-to-face -face therapy or telehealth as we're talking about. So I get people to do the lessons in between each of the sessions and then that's the structure that I use when I'm applying stuff and helping the person to apply the skills. Because we all know that with things like cognitive behavioural therapy, the skills are simple. It's the application that's actually hard. Uh, the other way that, uh, that, that we use this, I mean, for our clinic, we're an anxiety disorders clinic that used to have a very, very long waiting list. Um, since we've introduced the online CBT, we don't have a waiting list. We get people straight up to do it. It introduces people to the concepts uh, and principles. And then a lot of people say that's enough, uh, uh, which is a really interesting 
uh, I think, development. Thanks very much, Mike. John Mendoza, Professor John Mendoza is Director of Connecticut. John said several executive appointments, including the inaugural chair of the Australian Government's National Advisory Council on Mental Health, um, and uh, works hard as Director of Connecticut, Better Futures for Individuals and Communities across Australia in various areas of mental health. Based in Adelaide, you're connecting with people in high need. What's particularly happening in Adelaide, John? Well, Norman, you'll be uh, might be surprised to hear lots is happening in Adelaide. The um, the thing we're doing at the moment, and it's it's part driven by the COVID nineteen um, problems that we uh, are all confronting in terms of how do we continue to provide uh, care to those people with persistent uh, and sometimes severe mental health problems. They're clients of community mental health teams, um, so they have ongoing uh, care needs. And at, the, at this time, when we're faced with a pandemic, um, there is a tendency to want to withdraw some of those services, so not uh, visit people in their homes, not have them come into community mental health uh, clinics and so forth. Um, we're seeing this as an opportunity to uh, really surge ahead with the rollout of digital platforms to support those people uh, with complex needs uh, in the community and not replace uh, what is being the sort of raft of interventions and uh, therapies that have been provided, but really provide another means, another channel of providing uh, those services. So that sounds great, but complex needs are usually not around anything to do with mental health or to do with housing, transport, jobs. How on earth does digital health help that? Uh, well, in the same way that um, uh, digital platforms help all of us uh, tackle those complex needs, I, I'm meaning they, they have complexities that are associated with their mental health uh, condition. So their inability to gain employment um, and uh, uh, you know undertake uh, learning programs these things are all facilitated through digital platforms. So you're not just dealing with the, the mental health domain, you're dealing with the other social and functional domains and, and providing people with greater access to those, uh, those sorts of services. Our plan is to uh, provide uh, a significant number of iPads with uh, the uh, data access requirements that people need. Um, so where people don't have those tools, we want to provide them. And based on some experience we had here a number of years ago uh, with um, jobless families, we found the uptake of these, the utility and the benefit for people was uh, quite outstanding. So we're confident that with a far more sophisticated digital mental health platform um, that we will be able to support these people with complex needs, with severe mental health uh, conditions, um, use these tools in a way to supplement what community mental health teams are doing now and are at, at some degree at risk of losing some of that face-to-face -face contact that they've got at the moment. It's all very new and shiny. How are you going to measure outcomes? Well, we will work with um, uh, our partners in this. Um, Ian is a partner in it. Uh, in terms of how we measure this. Um, the platform itself does an enormous amount of data collection in terms of the user experience. And again, as everyone's mentioned here tonight, the importance of having consumer input into the way the uh, platform is calibrated, if you like, 
to the needs of this particular group. So we're focusing on fo on folk in the western um, areas of Adelaide. So I'm talking about the Woodville out to Port Adelaide area. These are people with lower levels of digital access than say over in the eastern suburbs. Um, and we'll be able to track, you know, how they're going, but also, you know, not not as I say, displace the relationship that they have with their key support worker, but supplement it and provide another avenue during this period where we've got constraints on those face-to-face -face interactions. Thanks, John. Angela Bergona is Chair of the New South Wales Branch of the College of Psychiatrists and have various uh, senior clinical director positions in the public system, as well as being private psychiatry itself. Angelo, um, you know, um, psychiatrists, you know, the stereotype is they want to control everything, um, not necessarily at the forefront of new ideas and integration with the rest of the system. Um, are, are psychiatrists going to be agents for change here? Well, I think, Norman, um, the last couple of weeks has seen the most dramatic change in the behaviour of psychiatrists that I've witnessed in 35 years of being in the profession. So people have adopted um, uh, telehealth platforms uh, extraordinarily quickly, some of it driven by um, need to maintain income, some of it driven by need to be able to ensure the um, health of, their, of the patients that they're looking after. Um, but essentially, we've just seen uh, transformation. And I think we've also seen them use apps because we've uh, got them online over the course of the last fortnight as well. So they've got platforms where they, forums where they can share information. And I think a lot of them, like me, uh, a Luddite, um, has, they've learnt an awful lot about how to use apps and how to share information online and access information online. And I think this sort of... Um, experience that they're gaining is going to inform the sorts of uh, uh, take-up of new technologies that sort of Ian and John and others... Are it's not just the new take-up of new technologies, it's changing the model of care. We're talking about quite profound changes to how you look after your clients, yeah. your patients. I think people are getting much more comfortable with the idea of being able to um, talk to uh, and see people remotely. Um, I had never used it as part of my practice. I never had to. Um, now it is all of my practice virtually. And, um, and I'm finding that I'm able to, to um, provide a service which is comparable to the quality of service that I did previously. So I think everybody's having the same sort of experience. We also have the experience of the... So can I just interrupt you, Angela? Yeah. You're saying comparable, but presumably you'd want to improve. Um, not that you're a crap psychiatrist, I'm hazing to add here, Angelo, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, the, the, the promise here is that you, you get integration, you get feedback, you're allowed to monitor and so on, and it changes the way you deal with it. It's not just the one-hour session that you might have as a billable thing on Medi Medicare. It's, it's an ongoing relationship with the client. I agree then. We haven't had we haven't been big on um, looking at outcomes and our way of monitoring has been very much um, a, a personal clinical experience way of determining the uh, improvement in patient care. And I think these will, these uh, applications potentially can add a much better level of uh, science to what we're doing. Thanks, Angela, for that. Michael Moore is Chief Executive Officer of the Central and Eastern Sydney Primary Health Network, uh, active GP, and, uh, and had a long interest in, in digital solutions, particularly with uh, youth mental health services. 
Michael, what are the risks, if you like, related to telehealth? Are they real or imagined or what? I think there, there are real risks. And I think, um, as Angela has just said, you know, we um, are going through a very rapid transition. Um, we're in a, a fast car that's sort of uh, roaring down the road and we've got to watch out for the risks that are, um, that are ahead of us. And, you know, this is not a stage rollout. This is a, is a very sudden, very rapid implementation. And so, um, you know, there's a few things we need to look out for. And I guess the... the the scheme that I, I have in my head is, um, you know, what's the, what are the organisation risks? And I'm talking about individual practices risks. What are the technology risks? What are the risks to the person that's actually delivered the, delivering the service, the psychiatrist that, you know, has suddenly been thrown at this, something that they've never dreamed that they would have to do? And, um, and what are the risks to the client? And, um, and there's real risks to the organisations because um, we, as a primary health network, deal with a lot of NGO um, mental health providers. And um, there's viability issues for someone. If, if they're not able to jump onto this um, cart that's rolling down the hill, this uh, digital health thing, um, very quickly within the next uh, you know, couple of months, um, under the COVID um, public health orders, um, they're going to become non-viable non services that aren't able to provide a service. And so that, that's, a, that's a big risk. Um, in terms of the te technology, yeah, go on, sorry. I to talk about those risks, and then they could put you off completely. Are there ways of mitigating them? Well, I think uh, as a primary health network, we're doing what we can do with the um, organisations that we contract with. And so the kind of services that we would ordinarily provide to GPs and private allied health practitioners, we're now starting to provide those to NGOs as well. And it's a tough call because, you know, they're, they're bigger than the clients we're normally able to deal with. And so, you know, with the GPs, you can kind of go, well, look, use the phone. And then when you're comfortable with that, you know, maybe use Skype. And then when, you, when you're comfortable with that, use some kind of, you know, enterprise level um, type uh, Teleconsultation thing, you know, like um, you know, Health Direct or or um, or Innowell is a very good product. So you know, there's 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 a whole conversation we have, but with de dealing with the NGOs, it's it's a big conversation. So this is not something necessarily one jumps in with both feet straight on. You have to think about it a bit. Well, unfortunately, um, we've already jumped in, and we kind of have to think while we're falling into the water. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury at the moment because of the public health orders of doing things any other way. So um, I think we're all doing a crash course in risk management. And presumably that emphasises getting the platform right in the beginning. Yeah. Sebastian Rosenberg is a fellow of the Centre for Mental Health Research at the ANU and also the Brain and Mind Centre. Um, Sebastian, you've, all, you've had a long interest in inequities in mental health. Um, this could make it worse because there are huge inequities in access to information and communications technology. Yeah, that's exactly right, um, Norman. So um, there are two main issues, I think, with the Better Access Program. There's inequitable access across Australia because it's really based on where the health professionals operate. And there's almost a complete lack of accountability. So we're spending $30 million every week now, and we know almost nothing about the health impact of the spending. I should also say that New that's, not, that's not telemental health, though. No, uh, I'll get to that. So, new, new client, this is showing, however, how a, a good, a well intentioned program can really run awry quite quickly. New clients into better access to are also only about one third of all clients every year. So, the model of care and recovery is not at all clear. So, I was really pleased to hear from Peggy Brown that standards have been developed. But to be honest, Norman, you know, we've had national mental health service standards since 1996 and it's very difficult to see them driving systemic quality improvement. You know, there is already telehealth in mental health, Norman. In the outpatient setting, more than half of all community mental health services 
provided where the patient wasn't present lasted between five and 15 minutes. Most of these were surely phone calls made from hospital outpatients to the consumer to see how they're going. Now, in 2017-18, there were 2.2 million such services. So I guess my question is, you know, is this good care? So my question really is, will telehealth really drive better access to quality care that is truly accountable? So what's the driver for change? So look, you know, there are models elsewhere where we have, well, first of all, there needs to be a proper thinking and investment, not just in the delivery of a service and a model of service, but in a model of accountability. And there are templates elsewhere. You look at the way the IAPT system was implemented in the United Kingdom with regular monitoring and reporting of, of outcomes. Uh, you look at the way New Zealand implemented real-time feedback from mental health consumers about their progress. These are the way uh, uh, we need to be thinking about um, investing not just in services but in real genuine accountability. Okay, well, we'll come back to some of the details on that. John Fennelly is director of the Black, board, board director of Black Dog Institute, um, long career in public service and was mental health commissioner in, uh, in New South Wales. Um, you know, John, as someone of the family member of severe recurrent mental illness, how could these systems be better utilised and how do you answer some of the criticisms or cautionary tales of both uh, Michael Moore and Sebastian? Well, I mean, I have to say, um, Norman, having spent a lot of time um, both from a policy end but also with a family member in this area, I really hope that COVID-19 will be the disruptor that this um, very static uh, mental health system needs. I mean, the fact is, for a person with severe and persistent mental illness, oftentimes every episode might as well be the first. We don't, the system doesn't learn as it goes. It's not very respectful of the person. It certainly doesn't engage them in a partnership often. And I think that necessarily because the traditional models of care just aren't possible with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're having to look at new things. And I should say there's some real concerns from my part. I'm on the Mental Health Review Tribunal and we've stopped doing any live hearings. So we don't go into prisons, we don't go into hospitals, and I hope that doesn't go on for too long because I think there are areas where uh, you do need a presence and you need to be asking difficult questions which often get lost um, through um, the telehealth-style technology, through videos. Um, but this, this opportunity where you start engaging people in a way that has the promise of giving them as much of them they need in the manner they need it and the time they need it, I think is really promising. And hearing John Churos and, um, and also hearing Sam describe his involvement, I feel there's a lot of promise here because oftentimes the person isn't given the opportunity to truly partner, for, for instance, isn't actually adding their own data into the system about what their experience is on a week-to-week -week basis. So, you know, we see them in hospital, we surround them with care, we send them out into the community, and they may not see anyone very often at all, and they certainly don't have an input. We still rely on the old, you'll come and see me at this time or I'll come and see you. Whereas what we've seen today through, through this uh, webinar is the potential for tracking all sorts of things on a much more regular basis. But the person with the lived experience having a role in that, mistake in that, and having a conversation about that, which is much more real than it often is today. And I, you know, without wanting to expose my own family members' um, privacy, the fact is they've had many, many experiences over many, many years. And the system itself hasn't learnt much about them in that time. And I would hope that with digital technology where you can really give that person, that is the, the person with lived experience, a stake in that and a different type of relationship. Because the fact is, 
this COVID-19 will disrupt the power relationships that currently exist. The fact that you might have a telehealth um, engagement with your psychiatrist, your psychologist and that, to me is a really positive thing. Not the fact that it should happen all the way like that, but the very fact that a person has to traipse into someone's office to see them, often at a level of need when, frankly, they would do just as well by, by telehealth. I've got to tell you, it's been an eye-opener for me in terms of my family member. We tend to ring them. I now realise that we should have been doing you know, FaceTime and, and sure. you know, all the other things. So I, I think there's a great promise in this as a disruptor. Julia Sajai, thanks very much, Michael, uh, John. Uh, Julia Sajai is a transitional nurse practitioner in mental health and a credential mental health nurse at the Kildare Road Medical Centre in Blacktown. In, from your perspective as a nurse practitioner, Julius, what, what's the use you're finding for digital platforms in patients with mental health care, needing mental health care? Thanks very much, Norman. Um, yeah, um, being a user of the platform myself, um, it's given the opportunity to um, have patients come through because, you know, uh, uh, I'm based at, a, a, at the primary uh, care sector. Uh, at the GP practice, and you know, most people they do trust their GP, so uh, they come in to uh, to to onboard on the on the program, and we've used it, we've been able to use the platform to, um, you know, do a bit of a screening for people uh, who ordinarily would not have met the threshold for uh, the uh, tertiary or the secondary uh, mental health care. So, for example, people who maybe they got like um, low to moderate, you know, depressive symptomology, or people with uh, psychological distress that you know they might be uh, that they might benefit from uh, psychological therapy. Uh, the the use of this you know uh, platform is actually opened that door uh, for people to come in through the primary healthcare sector through their GP to access the service and, and and get on the system and get on that platform to do their own you know sort of. Um, that collaboration to do their own self-assessment uh, to come up with you know uh, ideas as to how they want to move their health and mental health well-being forward. Uh, the platform, yeah. So it improves connectivity and engagement. Absolutely, and also uh, people who will not ordinarily you know uh, present to, uh, so for example, the community mental health team or walk into a mental health service will normally come to uh, the primary health care to talk to their GP, and by so doing. They can actually access, you know, uh, the the digital platform to in maybe in their own, you know, home environment be able to do their own self assessment and and they can use that as a way to engage the clinician and ask for uh, their needs. So for example, somebody who uh, is having some sort of um, high anxiety level or maybe psychological distress uh, will be able to use that platform to say to their GP, I think I need, um, I think I need psychological sort of therapy to, to deal with my high uh, anxiety levels. And straight away, without mincing water, without wasting time, uh, a GP mental health care plan can be uh, put in place for the patient to access the right support. So there's efficiency gains as well. Julius, thanks very much indeed. Associate yeah. Professor Liz Scott is a consultant psychiatrist in mind plasticity and discipline leader of the Young Adult Mental Health Service at St Vincent's Hospital School of Medicine, um, director of the Young Adult Mental Health Unit at St Vincent's uh, and, and heavily involved now. Liz, are you currently flipping your clinic with technology? Norman, we are indeed. We have, what's remarkable, I agree with Angelo, is what would have taken two years of persuasion, negotiation and pushing, we've managed to achieve in two weeks. And it's been really interesting, some of the kind of initial kind of response to that. One of the most important things is that young people and their families have really rapidly adapted to this change. So we flipped our 
multidisciplinary community clinic. We've also flipped our specialized hospital outpatient clinic, and we're in the process of trying to flip our inpatient service to a telehealth, but also a digital health kind of service. Inpatient, just explain that one. Yeah, so at the moment in the COVID era, obviously admitting young people to an inpatient unit, especially as we're at St. Vincent's Hospital, we're in the kind of epicenter of the current COVID cases is challenging. So it's given us the opportunity to look at how we might run a kind of stepped care, less, you know, look at less intense levels of care and look at hospital at home treatment. So how would we provide a platform that would allow us to treat people in their own homes with the collaboration of community clinicians and families? So, so really to look at you know, what would have taken us a long time to put in place, we now think that we could actually do quite quickly with a digital platform that would allow us to track and monitor and importantly to escalate care. So. I would, so really to provide care according to the person's needs and the intensity and severity of their symptoms rather than to when their next appointment can be scheduled. And any sense of the quality of care? I mean, this sounds like a compromise. You could see it as a compromise or you could see it as disruption for improvement. I think it's, I mean, it's disruption and I think it's, it's really something that needs to be tested. What, what, are the, what are the elements of care that can be provided at home? What would be the advantages of that in keep, keeping young people within their community, within their school, within their job, for instance, so not, not causing the dislocation that hospital care can provide, but also about efficiency. We could treat more people. We could provide more specialist services, provide better access at lower cost, work with young people and their communities, provide better skills, you know, upskill people around the community, and keep hospitals inpatient services for those people that really need the care, for the treatments that can only provide, be provided in a hospital environment, or for those people who really are not able to access those other forms of care or don't have the support available to them. Thanks, Liz. I mean, we could talk uh, a lot about digital natives, about you know, younger people who are more used to these technologies and we've got access to them, but of course there's an older group of people as well. And Haley Lamonica, the senior research fellow, board certified clinical neuropsychologist at the Central Clinical School at the University of Sydney. What about the technology, Haley, for older people in Australia? Well, I think, Norman, the, the idea that uh, older adults can't or won't use technology is really a myth that we just need to throw out the window. Um, back in 2014, 68% of older adults, so people over the age of 65 in Australia, were using the internet. Um, and this is actually the fastest growing group of internet users. Um, and also, in fact, they're the fastest growing group of gamers, which is quite fascinating as well. Um, and through our group at the Healthy Brain Aging Program, uh, we ran a survey and actually 95% of our respondents, um, so this is a group of older adults over the age of 50, indicated that they were interested in a platform or a website or something to support healthy, um, healthy aging, their own health and well-being. So, there really is a desire for this type of digital support. Um, and I think really for those who aren't currently engaging with technology, it's not generally a, an unwillingness or a lack of interest, but really a need for some guidance or some training around sort of the, the hows and the whys of it. So I really liked, um, I think the phrase was digital navigator that John brought up earlier. I really like the idea of incorporating that into services now to ensure that we're able to sort of upskill people in terms of the use of this um, technology for those who may not be as digitally literate. So I really think um, COVID gives us a, an opportunity to bring those older adults who aren't currently online, get them, get them online, 
and really upskill the group in terms of how to use these technologies. One for social connection, really, because this is going to be the, the group that's potentially most isolated and for the longest period of time, but also to ensure really that they're able to access the care that they, that they need. Thanks very much, Haley. Jason Trefowen is Chief Executive Officer of Headspace National. Uh, Jason, let's talk about waiting lists in digital health. I mean, Headspace tries not to have waiting lists, but you inevitably do. Yeah, thanks, Norman. Look, I think um, uh, I was talking to Ian Hickey about this today in that, um, not surprisingly, um, when, you, when you promote mental health and wellbeing and opportunities to access services, you shouldn't step away from that just because there's wait lists or, or capacity issues. But we do have to think differently. And I think the COVID crisis is doing a couple of things. One is that um, it's going to, for young people, it's going to unearth a whole other waiting room. Um, for young people who are perhaps... Um, stable in their life, they're going through university, um, things are going pretty well, stable employment. And all of a sudden, for the first time in their life, for many of them, this is a massive disruption. And this is going to really challenge their own mental health and wellbeing. Their goal setting um, may be different. The things that they enjoy the most and doing them often have been taken away in this hopefully what is going to be an interim period. So what do we have to do? I don't think it's just about having more clinicians on the ground and clearly now with the digital opportunities or the innovation that uh, COVID now provides is that we have to look at not just um, replacing the face-to-face -face with telehealth. Um, for young people, uh, what is telehealth? Oh, is that what you mean? It's just online. Okay, well, what else? Um, and the what else has to be um, credible resources that they can engage in, not just um, static information like a fact sheet of what is depression or what is anxiety, you know, if I'm homeless and I've got anxiety and, I'm, um, and I've been bullied, I should be able to see myself through three merged static pieces of information that starts to talk to me as opposed to me reading three isolated pieces of information. It should allow me to engage at any time with peers who are going through very similar lived experience. I should be able to web chat. I should be able to SMS. Video, yeah, okay, I'm happy to do that if that's the way um, the funding system says I can do it. I'm happy with a phone call as well. So... The waiting list issue and young people and the demand, we shouldn't, you know, we, we, obviously when um, we, we're used to the term waiting list when it comes to acute outpatient services and, and, and others in hospital settings, but for mental health, this well, forced innovation... So I, so I understand what you're saying, sorry, we're just running out of time, but I understand what you're saying about flexibility, but Ian made the point right at the beginning, I think John Churris made it as well, is that video is an essential element here. That this is about human face-to-face -face interaction, very hard to actually do this by a simple telephone call. Um, you know, so all this endless flexibility may not be getting you to a better place. Yeah, look, that's right. I think it's a, what I'm saying, it's, it's a menu, it's a shopping list of opportunities for young people to engage. And of course, we've experienced so far, Norman, that young people in some cases are, are opting, opting out uh, and they're gonna wait to face-to-face -to -face returns. Um, they don't have the data, they don't have the internet access um, that perhaps we, we would love them to have. Um, so it's, it's not a, we're not a homogenous group. Um, and so we have to have the menu and the shopping list to be, to be able to um, be there for young people on their terms. And obviously, all credit to the clinicians who have just made such a rapid transformation across the country in all disciplines across um, mental health and other and physical health uh, who are now working in a very different way. We're going to learn an incredible amount about what it's like over the next six months. And, and, and let's, I think the genie's out of the bottle. It's going to be hard to put it back in. Francis, let's go back to you for a moment, Francis K. Lampkin. Have you got some examples of peer support online? I was talking to Sam about that a moment ago. 
certainly do, and I'm very happy for Sam to, to weigh in here. But again, um, so we have a, a platform called the Eclipse module Eclipse platform that does this kind of navigation function and, and Ian's um, talked about his platform and there are other ways in which people can help um, decide for themselves what it is is, is is the most best the best and the most credible for them to engage in and one of the things we've been working with is this uh, a social networking platform and I would just make the point that this is building on and leveraging the, the way we tend to connect in today's world so we're all using the same tools and concepts that people are already using to connect with each other a lot of people don't want to talk on the phone or don't want to necessarily use video and young people particularly are happy to text or communicate in emojis so we're already doing this in other ways and it's just bringing that way in which we're connecting today to this issue of how we connect about our mental health and well-being and one of the wonderful things I think is that it's also providing a platform for our peer workforce in mental health who are a very important part of our workforce and our response to um, mental health issues and, and mental health support to be able to connect with each other and to be able to, to, to provide that support uh, across a wider a wider group of people than, than currently and so through the tools that we've been using it's been really humbling to see that most of the, the benefits and those life-changing moments that occur actually between peers. Um, so people who have that shared lived experience of helping each other and supporting each other. And I think um, this group are our digital navigators. Often they've been through the systems. They know what works and what doesn't work. And they are often um, in, in this great position to be able to provide that kind of support, particularly in this time, because they're doing it already. Thanks very much, Francis. Uh, Danny Rock is Principal Advisor and Research Director of the West Australian Primary Health Alliance. Um, you, what, can you just talk about digital mental health and you know, with established, you know, how it interacts with established services, particularly those who've rapidly transferred their face-to-face -face provision into a digital offering? Yeah, thanks, Norman. The, um, really, our experience in this kind of is, we, we went through our COVID moment three years ago, I think, when we got the, uh, the guidance from the Commonwealth around three or four years ago, it slows down ATAPs and do something different and better. Um, and, and so we 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 tipped up a, a, a digital psychotherapy service, and um, I think I think the design phase, the pre-design took us 25 years, but the design phase was was about a week, and then um, about three months to stand it up in place. And the service is the service is called Ports. Um, we were relatively conservative about what we did, and it's, it's online but an app-based program. I thought I'll, I'll, I'll go through that and then I'll maybe talk about some of the lessons and challenges quickly and then the brave new world. So the port service is our mainstay provision. It, as I said, it's, um, it operates um, on the MindSpot platform and, and through Nick Titov's group. And the advantage for us for that was that they have the technology, the expertise and the knowledge to do, to do this. Um, it's a free service, GP referred. Fundamentally, it's measurement-based care. So there's a feedback loop to the general practice and, and, the, and the person receiving care can see their progress themselves. And it's a combination of, when we say digital, it's, it's phone-based, internet-based, but we still use paper workbooks for some regions. So, that, so it, 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 it's what works. Adults up to, and you can see the age range there, um, 96 years. I think we've done 4,000 patients so far. And so the dots what, don't what represent the individual patients. What are the results you're getting, Danny? We're, we're running out of time. Okay. So the, what, what do the results get? That um, people, people get better and that, and they, they don't, it's not miraculous. They, 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 people who are severely unwell become 
get to a sort of moderate level of wellness. People are moderately well, get to a capable, mild level and, and so forth. What's really important with what we've done, Norman, though, is we follow people up at three months because it's all well and good to be doing something in this digital space and, or any space, but we, we have, and we sustain it at three months. And what's the most striking for us? It's not just simply distress going down, but the, as a fundamental measure, the, the days out of roll, days out of roll seems to be a foundational measure. People want to get their lives back and the, the, this, this gives them their lives back. And, it, and, and it's not so intrusive in their lives that they're overwhelmed because many of the people we're providing care to They've got, they're already overburdened. They're coming into care with, you know, six days out of roll. Treatment is not exactly free in terms of burden. We're adding into their burden. And we have to be mindful of that. The other thing that's really exceptionally important in this is, um, and I'm looking at the panel here, there's I think 23 or four of us, we're the weirdest people in the world. I mean, we're the people, we're not like anybody we treat, really. We design, conceive of, develop these things. And then we optimize them in RCTs, but we don't re actually understand that optimization has to occur in the real world. Your point earlier, so, it, so it's great, it works fabulously. In, in it, when I was director of research, everything we did worked. It was fabulous. It was in the Western suburbs of, of, of Perth. It was just when we did it in the real world, things started to go apart a bit. And, and I think that's why we need the, the support and mediating structures for digital health that you know, Peggy was talking about, because in the absence of those, this, this, this grand transformation will fail. So for organizations like us, we're lifting up and it's our core business. But if you're, if you're uh, existing in the kind of organic cottage industry of psycho psychotherapy that there is the better access system, you're gonna go from a pre-industrial to a post-industrial provision in one step in the face of a real threat, an existential threat. And we'd like, to get, we'd like you to be there in, in 30 days. And it seems to me, at least, that we seem to be um, applying one standard to say, for example, the vaccination we're trying to develop and saying this is going to take a year and we have to hold on and applying a completely different standard to the provision of psychotherapy suddenly as if you can substitute it as if it's a digital thermometer. So, so you know, we're taking a mercury thermometer when, in fact, the process is a whole scale workflow redesign. And, and, and that's fundamental. I mean, Thanks. just the substitution approach is not going to work, I don't think. Thanks, Danny. Ian, um, can you just, we're running out of time. Can you just summarize some of the big questions that have come in and what the possible answers might be? Or? Yeah, look, thanks to everyone for their very detailed replies here. I've been typing furiously. Big issues around professional training. Do we got professions who are trained to actually do this? No, the professions will have to train to do this differently. Will it actually focus on increased quality of care and not be a degraded experience? That we need to have to track. Are uh, there unintended consequences in certain situations? You know, you've got to assume when you mess with a health system in the real world, as Danny was just alluding to, stuff's going to happen that you didn't predict from earlier smaller focused trials. So we need to monitor that. The quality and safety environments, and so the issues that Peggy was emphasising, I think are absolutely critical and that they are understood both by, by users of services and providers of services. And particularly the ones she raised about models of care. What are we trying to achieve here? Better care at scale, more personalised, more transparent, not a degraded experience from traditional face-to-face -face care. And I think what most people have been talking about is digitally enhanced services, not digital health versus clinical health, but how do the two come together to actually give a better experience? And the individual mix will need to be negotiated by the individual at the service level, but also by the different services. 
the whole integration of mental health and, and the change and the disruption that's happening. I love um, Angelo's comments. Everyone, even the older psychiatrists like me and him, suddenly have to be really different. The world just changed and the tools are sitting there for us to engage in. We're all part of health systems, the providers, but the better care for those users right across the spectrum of mental health. So lots of people raised, we'll provide a lot of the resources, answered as many questions as I possibly can during this time, the output from that, and that will drive us into what other issues. So some people have been asking for us to recommend specific platforms, specific apps, particular tools. We've avoided that during this particular uh, overview, but we will come back to that in very specific areas of interest. You mentioned some, Norman, like comorbid substance abuse, critical areas, others in aged care, common anxiety and depression, common sets of issues. So we will, in future seminars, pick up those very specific issues and less of the overview that we've had this evening. But if I could thank everyone, including you, Norman, for facilitating what has been a long and complex list of questions, it has been our goal to give people an overview. There's a tremendous amount of wealth here. I think Danny's point is critical. A lot has been done in narrow, focused areas by enthusiasts in the area. We're now talking about big health system reform, not tele, but digital, enhanced care, not a degraded substitute for current clinical care. And that requires us all to behave very differently in the future. And thank all our panelists and uh, the, the, the three, four hundred, twenty panels. Look, thank you all very much indeed. You've all contributed immensely to this. This is the beginning of um, this is the end of the beginning, if you like, of the conversation here with uh, digital mental health. And um, there will be more, as Ian has uh, promised. And thank you all very much uh, who participated and been listening to this conversation. And hopefully, you'll engage as we move forward. And as Ian said, he'll try and reply as much as possible to get as big a community as possible having an ongoing conversation about this. this finally, Norman, this is available through Sydney Ideas. So it comes off the Sydney University website, Sydney Ideas, and that will be the critical link to follow up. And just flashing up as we say, look at that, as I speak, magic. I love the digital world, magic happens. <laughs> so these are other useful resources, but the links to the issues that have been discussed tonight, many of the references we're talking about, future webinars, and particularly the Q&A, which has been running furiously in the background and other issues, we will um, then send out through the Sydney University Sydney Ideas website. Thank you all very much. And Thank you, that's good. Uh, nobody's going to go anywhere, but if you are, go safely. <laughs> Stay home. Stay yeah. home for Stay Easter. Home. Bye. <laughs> Thanks Thank everyone. you so much, Norman. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks.